We are in a series that we started last week entitled, Can You Relate? And we are walking through the Apostle Paul's words in the book of Ephesians, and specifically in 5 and 6 is what we're looking at, and kind of looking for God's wisdom. Uh, What does he have to say about how we relate in our relationships, namely the relationships of marriage and in the family, parents and children, children and parents, and uh, as well as the workplace. And so we've been walking through that, and uh, if you were here with us last week, we kind of laid some of the groundwork of that and understanding some of the struggles in in those relationships. Uh, But this week, we're going to zero in and kind of get a little bit more specific. Last week, we took kind of a big view. Uh, This week and the next few weeks, we're going to take more of a specific view, and we're going to talk about how we relate when it comes to the relationship of marriage and keeping it together, as we're going to talk about uh, this morning. So if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Relationships are hard. Marriage is is hard, right? It can be challenging. I I like what someone once said, uh, dating brings out the best in us. And marriage oftentimes brings out the rest in us. And it's when the rest comes out, which inevitably it does, uh, that it can be challenging. And it can be tough. But it can also be, here's the, here's the beautiful part. It can also be the makings of a beautiful love story that paints, in the end, paints a picture of God's love for us and points people back to him. And that's what we want to accomplish in our marriages. But it is oftentimes easier said been done. Now, before we get started, we get into this. I recognize that for some of you this morning, and, and for a lot of people, marriage is not the most comfortable topic to talk about. I, I get that for a myriad of different reasons. Maybe for some of you, you're single and you don't want to be single. You, you, you'd rather be married, but, but things haven't worked out. Or maybe you were married, but you're not anymore. And maybe that was a choice you made, or maybe that was a choice that was made for you, but you've gone through the ugly reality of, of divorce. Or maybe because of the death or loss of, uh, of a spouse, you've gone, your number's gone from two uh, to one. And, and I recognize that subjects like this can be difficult sometimes because of those things. I hope you know this more than anything. I hope you know that you are surrounded, if you fit into one of those categories, you are surrounded by people who love and care about you. We are a family, and, and we want to love and, and, and encourage and, and help each other along no matter where we are in life. But I hope you realize more than anything, you have a heavenly father who loves you and cares about you. And no matter what category you fit into, he loves you and cares about you. But I also recognize it's not always the most comfortable subject if you fit into one of those categories. But here's what I would say. Uh, As a family, if it applies to any of us, it applies to all of us. And so maybe this sermon isn't exactly for you if you're not in, you know, if you fit into one of those categories and, and you're, you know, and you're not married at this point, but maybe it's wisdom that you can gain to share some wisdom with someone else. So don't check out on me just because you fit into one of those categories. Maybe it's some wisdom you can either A, take down the line for yourself or B, maybe share it with someone else. So Without further ado, um, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Here's what Paul writes. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So, there is a lot to get into, and we are not going to be able to cover it all in one week, uh, but we'll try and get some high points and hopefully give some wisdom from God's Word this morning. Just to give you a little bit of background, though, and this is not just for contextual background, but it's also important for us to even understand today. But just a little contextual background about what's going on, namely when it comes to the way women were thought of in ancient times. How were they viewed in that male-female dynamic? Today in our culture, it's probably not surprising to hear someone say that a husband should love his wife. I mean, that makes sense. That's what we ought uh, to do. But back in in Paul's day, you'd be hard-pressed to find a whole lot of literature saying this is how a husband is to interact with his wife. It just wasn't the end thing. That's not, there weren't a whole lot of books on men loving their wives in the ancient culture because in ancient times, there were few obligations that a husband had to his wife outside of providing shelter and, and food. A wife was not seen as, as, as being equal to their husbands. That, that was so foreign in that day and age. We think very differently now. Um, that's, that's kind of the mindset that was going on in that culture. And so Paul, when he comes along and he speaks to husbands, he's calling them to something far beyond what their culture really would have held up as the idea. Believing husbands were challenged to follow Jesus in how they led their wives and how they loved their wives as opposed to the way the culture did it. In fact, when you read through this, Paul's, you know, his focus here is not necessarily on, it's easy to think, husband is the head of his wife, right? You know, macho men have abused that passage in a lot of ways. But Paul's focus here is not necessarily on the husband having authority over his wife. When, when, When he says, Husbands, is that you're the head of your wife? That's that's not really a big surprise in that culture. That that wasn't you know out of the ordinary. Even in pagan cultures, they would agree with that. Absolutely, the husband is the head of the wife. But Paul is focused not simply on the husband being the head, but how he he displays that authority. How is the husband exercising that authority as the head? He loves her like Christ loves the church. He doesn't abuse his authority. He doesn't lord it over her. In fact, he takes that authority and he loves her like Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He laid down his life for her. That's that's how he takes on the mantle of authority. And so the picture that Paul paints of a believing husband is not some authoritarian man who's kind of standing over his wife and using his authority to make his wife do what he wants her to do in order to secure his own agenda. That's not the picture here. The picture that Paul paints is a husband who is leading his wife, is the head of his wife spiritually. 
and who's willing to lay down his life for his wife, the way he expresses his authority is that he's willing to to give up himself for her. That's a very different picture of authority than they would have been familiar with, and even sometimes than what we see today when when we have or see that, that scripture being abused. And so the reason he's given greater authority is because he's expected to give greater sacrifice. He's expected to outgive her, to outserve her, to outlove her, to outdie her. After all, the example is none other than Jesus. And Jesus has the ultimate authority, and yet no one dove deeper than he did. And he laid down his life for us and for the church. Because to whom much is given, much is expected, much is required. And so it's a husband who exercises his headship by laying down his life for his wife, by sacrificing on behalf of her. Now, this isn't to say, though, that a husband is to be the slave of his wife any more than this text is saying that the wife is to be a slave to her husband, right? Now, that's been abused in a lot of ways in a lot of circles down through the centuries and and even today in a lot of circles, but it's not saying that. Neither one is a slave to the other. Paul goes on to talk about how Jesus died for the church. He gave himself for the church. He lays down his life. Why? To bring the best out of her. Because he's, he's submitting himself through his authority. And so Paul talks about Jesus washing the church, washing you and I through the, uh, the water of his word. Everything he does is to bring out the best in her, to evoke her beauty. And husbands are to do the same. That's the picture that Paul is painting. Husbands are to love their wives sacrificially and to do what it takes to bring out the spiritual potential of their wives. This, again, isn't a call to become slaves to one or the other, but it is a call to understand, I'm going to lay down my life for my wife. And I'm going to lead in such a way, not that secures my agenda, nor that gives into her agenda all the time, either way, but one that points to God's agenda. And, and, and I'm going to make sure that the, the agenda of the Lord is realized in my marriage and in my family and, and in our lives. That being said, Paul also has something to say to believing wives here. And so there's a picture that's being painted both from, from both ends. Here's what's going on in the church, okay? So Paul comes along. They're growing up, you know, doing life in this Greco-Roman culture. And so their women are being told, you're less than. You know, you're, you're, you're nothing more than property in a lot of ways. And then the gospel comes along, Christianity comes along and says, no, women are actually on equal footing with men. This is who you are in Christ. You have blessings in Christ just the same as men do. You have gifts in Christ just the same as men do. And what early Christianity did, even though church history hasn't always painted this picture, is it created a beautiful equality between men and women that we never saw before. You know, it's interesting. You, you have a lot of people that talk about all the things that Christianity has done down through the centuries and, and how it's male chauvinistic. In many ways, what the beauty of Christianity is, is Paul comes along and says, there's neither you know, Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor master, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And that's a beautiful picture of what Christianity does. But that being said, there were also some women who were apparently abusing that. And so Paul comes along and he says, that's awesome. You are finding your freedom in Christ. You're finding that you have just as much value as a man does. You're no less, you're no more, but that doesn't give you the right to diss your husbands either. So men, you don't have the right 
to dish your wives and treat them however you want to. Women, you don't have the right, just because you've got equal footing in Christ, to come along and diss your husbands, okay? So that's kind of the overall picture of what's going on. I think it's important to understand that, to understand that we are all on equal footing. And we all submit to each other, as we'll talk about in just a moment, out of reverence for Christ. That's the picture that is painted. And that's what's going on in the culture, because I think it's important to understand that, because people, when they approach this text, right, there's a lot of anxiety and there's a lot of abuse. And so we need to understand what's really going on here in the picture that Paul is painting. Here's the amazing thing, though. The amazing thing is, and we'll talk about this throughout the course of this lesson, is that this this is so practical. We abuse it, but it's really, really practical information when you understand what's going on and the picture that Paul is trying to paint here. That for 2,000 years, this stuff has really been practical for what makes a marriage thrive and what makes a marriage be able to keep things together through the long haul, through all the stuff, through all the junk that we go through. So this morning, I just want to give you four simple things. And you're going to say these are really, really simple things. And they are, but I think they're also very foundational things for helping us understand how do we keep things together over the long haul. And the first one is just simply this. Make what's most important the first priority. Make what's most important the first priority. Last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18, which comes just before Paul's words on on marriage that we just looked at and read from. And in verse 18, Paul says, don't get drunk on wine, instead be filled with the Spirit. In, In other words, instead of being filled up and controlled by so many other things, allow the Holy Spirit to fill and control you. And we talked about this a little bit last week, why this is so important. Because if, if Jesus, if I make what's most important the first priority, and I make Jesus primary in my life, if, if, I, if I do that, then I'm not going to expect the other people and the other relationships in my life to do for me what only Jesus can do. If he's not primary, then I'm going to expect my wife, my, my spouse, my kids, you, my job, whatever it may be, to do something for me that only Jesus can do. But the reality is that no relationship, no marriage, no family, no job can do for me what only Jesus Christ can do for me. And the quickest way to drain the life out of your marriage and out of your family and out of your relationships with each other is to expect my spouse or my family or my kids or any other relationship to do for me what only God can do for me. And, and when I make what's most important the first priority, I set my, my kids and my wife and my relationships, I set you up and you set me up. When we do that, we set each other up for blessings in a relationship, for happiness, for contentment, because my contentment isn't based on you treating me perfectly or loving me perfectly. It's based on God loving me perfectly in Jesus Christ. But that doesn't just make a difference in how you and I make Jesus our first priority. It also makes a difference in, in giving us an example to follow. Because sometimes the people in your life aren't always easy to love, right? And yet when we make what's most important the first priority, we understand that whether or not your spouse is lovable at that moment has nothing to do with whether you love them or not. Now, you may not like them a whole lot in those moments, but that decision to love them is irregardless of whether or not they are lovable or respectable at that moment. Why? Because you and I respect 
and love and honor Christ. That's why Paul writes at the very, very beginning of this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what's, that's what's marking everything that we do. We're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we're loving each other, not because we're lovable, but because we love Christ and we're trying to serve him. Any hassle, any burden, any difficulty, that's really an opportunity for you and I to show our reverence and our honor and giving glory to Christ. And when both husband and wife are making what's most important, the first priority, You are setting your marriage up, your family up, your life up for success over the long haul. Secondly, understand that we're different. Understand that that we are different. Now, this goes beyond the physical, okay? But what's the old, the book, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. It might be a stretch to say that we're from different planets, although you may feel like that at times. But we are different. And we need to understand, I know that's, I know it's, seems so simple, but it's so important for us to realize those differences because understanding those differences goes a long way when it comes to marriage. For instance, both husband and wife are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? Both of us are called, but that submission looks different for a husband than it does for a wife. It manifests itself in in what both of us need. Paul taught... When he, when he talks to husbands, he tells husbands, you need to love your wives. Now, not that wives are not called to love their husbands, but part of what a husband desires, and what we're going to talk about in this in just a second, is he calls husband, or wives to respect your husbands. This is what he says in verse 33. He says, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And in other words, when the husband is loving his wife, he's setting up the relationship for blessing and success. And when the wife is respecting her husband, she's setting up the relationship for blessing and success. Let me dig a little deeper into this. I don't know how many studies you've seen or read on on marriage. There are a ton. And all of them boil down to similar things, but I want to give you two in particular that really stand out to me. One, there was a study that was done several years ago, 20 years studying 2,000 couples. And they, they studied these, these couples, different, different backgrounds, different diversities, different races, but they studied them over the course of 20 years, 2,000 couples. What makes a marriage thrive? What makes a marriage last over those, those 20 years? And what they found is what most studies in the end come to find, that there's an undercurrent of two things in a marriage, two things, love and respect. You study any, any study on marriage and what makes a marriage last, there is love from a husband to a wife and there is respect from a wife to a husband. There's a, there's a mutual relationship, an undercurrent of love and respect. Hold on to that because there was another study that was done and it was just of men. But it asked men this question. If you had to choose between two negative choices, which one would you choose? Would you choose to be left alone and unloved in the world or would you choose to feel inadequate and disrespected by everyone? Would you choose? I know those are not good choices. You're like, well, that stinks. Would you choose to feel unloved? Or would you choose to feel inadequate and disrespected? 80% of men chose one of those answers. Do you have any guesses on what they chose? 80% of men would rather be left alone and unloved rather than be disrespected and feel inadequate. What's that telling you? Men desire respect. Women desire love. 
And here's what's interesting. What all this research reveals, you read any book, you read any study, what it all reveals, these ingredients that make a successful and lasting marriage just happens to be what Scripture has been telling us for 2,000 years. Men, love your wives. Wives, respect your husband. And, and, and could it be that the reason Paul says men love your wives, husbands, or women love your, your husbands, or respect your husbands, is that the Holy Spirit was in on creation and knows what makes each of us tick and what we need in those intimate desires in our hearts and in our lives. I mean, he was in on creation, right? It makes sense that he would know what each gender needs. And the reality is we just see things differently, right? You ever wondered, as a, as a guy, we wonder this all the time, how can my wife see this when I do not see this? And, and women, you say the same thing. How can he see this that doesn't even make any sense at all, right? We just tend to see things differently and process things differently and, and, and deal with things differently. Men tend to see things through the respect lens, and women tend to see and process things through the love lens. Now, I understand that that may be an overgeneralization. I, I understand that it may not be as simple as that. And yes, let's think about this week. You could probably say, wasn't it Aretha Franklin who sang R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it means to me, Right? Did you know, though, that she's not the one that wrote that song and originally recorded that song? Otis Redding is the one who actually wrote that song. He, he also is the one who wrote Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, which is probably what he was doing after he sang R-E-S-P-E-C-T, you know. But, but here's where it's not so funny. What happens is, and you see this so often in a marriage, what happens is when a husband doesn't feel respected, he tends to, to respond in ways that are unloving to his wife. When a wife doesn't feel loved, she tends to operate and respond in ways that are disrespectful or, or unrespecting to her husband. And so what happens is husband operates unloving. Wife, you know, operate and respond in, in, with respect. Wife then responds, husband, and it's just the cycle, right? And I won't ask you to please don't raise your hand to say if you've been there, done that. But we've all kind of experienced those things. And the only way to break that cycle is, first of all, by the grace of God, but B, tapping into making what's most important the first priority. Going back, why do we operate the way that we do? Not because my wife isn't respecting me or is respecting me, and so I can respond to her in loving ways, or because my husband is, is loving me, and so I can respond to him in respectful ways. We do so because we do it out of reverence for Christ. And we're making what's most important the first priority. And so we're, we're, we're loving out of that motivation. But we have to understand that, that we are different and we need different things. And when we start to understand that, I, make, I think it makes things a little bit clearer. So thirdly, get the order right. So make what's first or most important first priority, but also get the order right when it comes to everything else. I know we're talking about marriage this morning, but just to kind of take a step back, I think it's interesting the order that Paul gives these things. First, he talks about marriage. Then he talks about family, kids. Then he talks about slaves and masters. And I think that's a pretty good order. Marriage, kids, work. Now, I don't need to tell you that marriage comes before your work, although many marriages have been ruined because of that reality. Where it gets a little dicier is talking about if kids 
marriage should come before kids, right? Because I, I think we know that, but the problem is we don't always live that out. Because the reality is your kids take up a lot of work, a lot of time. And, and, and kids are a blessing, but they can also be very time-consuming. And we've got to make sure that we don't make our kids the center of our relationship. Your covenant with your spouse is bigger than your relationship with your kids. And, and I love my kids, but my relationship with my wife has to be more important than my relationship with my kids. And in fact, I'd even say that's a good thing. It's a good thing when we recognize and my kids recognize that my relationship with Marcy is more important than my relationship with them. For one, it, it, it gives them this message that, hey, no matter what changes in this world, I know that mom and dad are going to love each other and I know they're going to stick it out. But I think it's also important because it sends a message that you're not, you're not the center of our, our, our family. You're not the center of the world. And the quicker my kids get that, the more they realize that God is the center of our relationship. God, his agenda, his will is going to rule our family and our lives. And the sooner my kids realize, I think the more grounded they are when they realize that they are not the most important thing in the world. God is. And he comes first. And then comes my relationship with my spouse. And then comes our relationship with them. Have you ever, how many of you have flown? One of the things that they talk about, they'll talk about all the things, safety precautions you need to do, and, and they'll talk about in case of emergency, what to do with what falls from the thing above you, right? Your, your oxygen mask. Do you remember what they tell you to do if you have kids? What do they tell you to do? Put your mask on first. Why? A, because they, they know that if, you, if they don't tell you that, and even if they do sometimes, that parents have a tendency to help their kids when they're disregarding their own oxygen. And it's hard to put your kid's oxygen mask on if you don't have oxygen flowing through your nostrils. And I think what ends up happening is so often we spend so much time trying to put the oxygen mask on our kids while our marriage is suffocating. And Paul says you need to get the order right. Kids are important. We love our kids. But if our marriages aren't put first, then we're sending a terrible message to our kids. And I think we're setting them up for failure in the long run. And then the last thing I would say is this. Remember, remember that your spouse is not the enemy. Your spouse is not the enemy. Now, hopefully that goes without saying, but let me explain just a little bit. We talked about this last week, but it bears repeating. Don't forget how Paul wraps up this section on marriage and family and work. In Ephesians chapter 6, here's what he writes. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's so important to remember that in any struggle, in any relationship, your, your fight, your battle, your enemy is not, your struggle is not with the person in front of your eyes. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. But your struggle, my struggle, is with the spiritual forces that are at work all around us. Forces that are against the two becoming one. Forces that are against unity and peace and wholeness. And that's why Paul wraps up this whole section on the, on, on, in, in Ephesians and marriage and family and, and work by talking about how we all need to put on the armor of God. 
You know, every believer needs to put on the belt of truth. Every believer needs to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Every believer needs to put on the helmet of salvation. Every believer needs to have their feet fitted with the gospel of peace. Every believer needs to put on the shield of faith. Every believer needs to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And every believer needs to get very used to spending some time on their knees in prayer. You, you know, every time I, I've, I've got a wedding that, that's coming up or, you know, things that are, that are going on in, in that regard, and we just actually ran into um, somebody yesterday that was doing some, some shopping for a wedding that's coming up, and it just reminded me again, we spend so much time thinking about what we're going to wear for the wedding. You think back to your own wedding, how much time I guess, guys, maybe this doesn't apply to us as much. We just wear what we're told. But, you know, what's the color scheme? Okay, but you spend so much time thinking about what you're going to wear for the wedding. My question is, how much time do we spend thinking about what we're going to wear for the marriage? What are we going to wear in our parenting? What are we going to wear when it comes to the workplace? Because we all need the armor of God. We need to put on the armor. That's what we need to wear. Don't just think about what you need to wear for the wedding. What do you need to wear for the marriage, for the family, for the workplace? If you look at your Bibles in Ephesians chapter 5, probably have a heading in there. It says marriage or husbands and wives or instructions for Christian households, something along those lines at the top of that. And it's easy to forget what Paul writes in verse 32. This is a profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ in the church. He says, you know, we're talking about marriage and what makes a marriage last, and here's what we need to do. Here's how we need to operate. Here's how we need to look at each other. But really what I'm talking about is Christ and the church. And I was thinking about it this week. What are the colors that are typically associated with men and women, boys and girls? Blue and pink, right? Now, I know that not all girls like pink, and I know that not all boys like blue, and it's okay to wear pink. I'm wearing a purple tie this morning. I've worn a pink tie before. That's okay. I'm secure in my manhood. I can wear pink. But those are typically the colors that are associated. You know what, what happens when you mix blue and pink together? You know what color you get? Purple. You know what color purple or what purple usually represents? Loyalty. And really, isn't that the point? You think about it. When, when two become one, blue and pink, when two become one, people ought to be able to see the king in our marriages, and in our relationships, in our lives. And I think that's a lot of what Paul is pointing us to here in Ephesians chapter 5. And in so many ways, when two become one, and when love and respect are given, and, and each other are loving and respecting each other in the ways that God has called us to, your marriage can do more for spreading the gospel and showing the love and the grace of Jesus Christ than any sermon can do. In fact, one of the is that God has chosen to show his love and his grace to the world around us is through the relationship of marriage. And that's why when two become one, you really can see Jesus. And that's what really matters is that people see Jesus in our marriages and in our families and in our relationships. May they truly see the king in us.